Welcome to This is Democracy on the Road. Discussions and interactions across the world. This summer, we're going to take our discussions uh, far away from Austin, Texas, as we meet with and talk to uh, exciting people uh, around the world. Hello and welcome to this new episode of This is Democracy. This is Zachary Suri speaking. Today we are discussing the history and legacy of the former Italian city-state of Siena, located among these beautiful Tuscan hills. We are sitting here today with Jeremy Suri. Hello, Zachary Suri. And Natalie Suri. Hello. How are you guys this morning? We are well. We're enjoying this uh, beautiful, hot day in Siena. Yes. So, Jeremy, you have been taking us through the many historical parts of this very ancient city. So, why do we know so little about Siena? And why do we focus so much on Florence when it comes to the Renaissance? Well, uh, Zachary, it's a great question. Um, The winners write history. And uh, the Florentines, even though they were the weaker, less wealthy city of the 13th century, By the 14th and 15th century, and particularly by the 16th century, the time of Michelangelo and Machiavelli and others, Florence had become the wealthier, stronger city. And the Florentines, particularly Machiavelli, wrote the history of this period. And when they wrote the history of this period, they gave the Sienese, their rivals to the south, very little attention. They gave all the attention to themselves. Yes, and this really highlights a point we like to make often, and this is democracy, that there are always different perspectives to the typical story. There are always new stories to tell and new people to talk to when it comes to history. And that's why the history of our world is ever-changing. That's right, and the way we write history is important just as the way we live history is important. And we need to pay attention to the different ways the different groups write about their history. One of the most important developments of the last 50 years or so has been to bring more voices into the history of American society. We need to do that when we go back to earlier societies that are important for our democracy, earlier societies like this beautiful city of Siena in Tuscany that we're sitting in right now. So to focus more in on Siena itself, could you uh, please describe for us what made Siena so unique, what made its form of republican government so unique during its height during the Renaissance? So this is a long time ago. This is about 700 years ago. But Siena was a very small city located on a trading route between Rome, which was, of course, a major city, and other parts of Europe, in particular France. And Siena developed as a very wealthy trading city. And the Sienese uh, wanted in their city to have a kind of government that was representative of the merchants and families that lived in the city, a government that served their interests, a government that, as they've immortalized in their city hall, they called a government that manifested good governing principles. So they created in their constitution of the 13th century, this is so long ago, a constitution that created a system where there were no kings, but instead where you had representative assemblies. People didn't vote, but individuals were chosen for their expertise and their integrity from different parts of the city to represent different interests in the city as part of a collective government that was designed to serve the interests of everyone in the city, not just a wealthy few. Yes, and how were these um, 
these goals and aspirations of the Sienese constitution and government, how are they different from other city-states such as Florence and also our modern republic? Well, many other city-states tried to do this, uh, but the Sienese for about 100 years from the mid-13th century to the mid-14th century succeeded in having a government that was representative and effective. Whereas for most other cities, including Florence, they devolved into dictatorships very quickly. When Machiavelli writes The Prince, which is, I think, the most important um, work of political science uh, ever, uh, Machiavelli is writing to a prince who is almost a, a dictator. The dictator still has to care about the interests of his people. But uh, the Medici family and others who ruled Florence, uh, like the rulers of other societies in the early modern and medieval world, uh, they became dictators. Democracy was very fragile. Siena provides a model, at least for a short period, of a government that was representative and non-dictatorial, a government that actually manifested many of the qualities that we associate with democracy today. A government that did not play to the whim of the masses, and do not play to the whim of the elite either. Well, it was the, supposed to be representative of both. Yeah, and what, what the citizens of Siena struggled with was to develop a kind of government that was not too much beholden to the emotions of the masses, nor too beholden to a few elites. A government that balanced the need for expertise with the need for representative, representativeness. A government that served the people even when the people didn't know what was in their own best interest. That's the problem and the challenge, right? Too much uh, mass emotion, too much mass appeal, too much populism can be dangerous, and too much elitism can be dangerous. How do you find that balance in between? And that's what the CNEs struggled with uh, about 700 years ago. And as we'll talk about later in this podcast, that, that was really influential for the ways Americans thought about democracy in the 18th and 19th centuries as well. And yet the CNEs themselves did not have the sort of direct elections that we have for our representatives. No, they didn't trust elections because they thought elections only produced a popularity contest. So they had a system wherein uh, respected figures helped to choose representative figures from various groups within society. Something similar to what a lot of um, governments and organizations did in the 18th and 19th centuries as well. Yes, and we, t we talked about this as, a, as in some ways a model form of government, but what led to the downfall of this form of Sienese Republic? So it only lasted for about 100 years, and one of the lessons for us is that these kinds of governments, these systems are very fragile. And uh, we've had ours in the United States, a different kind of system, for more than 200 years, and maybe we've taken it for granted. Um, in the Sienese case, uh, after about 100 years, uh, a, a group of wealthy merchant families took control of this system, this very intricate system, and they used it for their own purposes. So it actually became corrupted by a small number of elites who dominated all the processes for choosing representatives, cho chose their own uh, favorable representatives and made the system serve their interests, not the interests of the people. So it actually became corrupted after about a hundred years and the ways in which the founders of Siena had feared it would become corrupted. Um, I feel like there's a pattern with all governments in all places where um, it, they always 
they always go through a downfall after, like, they get to a height, and there's, there's never been a government that's been strong enough to prevent a downfall. So what do you think the CNEs should have done, or slash could have done, um, to prevent the nine merchant families from taking over? That's a great question, Natalie. I, I think what the CNEs government could have done, or what they should have done, was to provide more mechanisms for limiting the power of families that became very wealthy and limiting the ways in which they could use their money to buy people off. One of the problems in Siena in the 13th and 14th centuries, which is the same problem we have today, is that when people get very wealthy, they use their money even in a system that works well to buy people off. Money corrupts even the best functioning system. And the fact that a small number of families became very rich very fast in Siena because of the trade of the 13th century allowed them to buy people off and create corruption that shouldn't have been there. So perhaps one lesson, Natalie, is that uh, limiting money in politics might be essential for the protection of good government. Yeah, and these are issues that are still under discussion today. That, that's what makes Siena so interesting. These are, the issues in our democracy today are not ones that are new. They have been going on for centuries, even millennia. And so what more specifically were these legacies of Sienese, uh, of the Sienese Republic? Well, uh, Zachary, it's a great question. One of the most important legacies is for our own democracy in the United States. The founders of our democracy, those who were uh, involved with writing our constitution, those who were involved with writing our Bill of Rights, were acutely conscious of the history of Siena and Rome that you mentioned before so well. They read the histories of this period. They read about this period because they wanted to create in the United States, what was becoming the United States in the late 18th century, a society that was representative, that was not beholden to demagogues, nor beholden to tyrants. They were looking for the same balance between the interests of the people and the interests of good government balancing against the tendency towards uh, demagoguery with too much mass opinion and the tendency towards elite corruption. And they wanted a society that would be creative and prosperous like the Renaissance states of Siena and Florence were. So the history we've discussed the last few minutes was exactly the history that all of the founders, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, that they were all acutely conscious of as were others like Abigail Adams and those who were not allowed in the actual debates. Uh, this, this was the conversation of the late 18th century in the United States. Uh, one historian, J.G.A. Uh, Pocock, has called this the Machiavellian moment. It's really the Sienese as well as the Florentine moment. So, Jeremy, what do you think young people can do to better understand the roots and origins of modern government? Because as you've shown us, this is really important in the creation and continuation of our democracy. Well, I mean, I think there are three things that young people, that uh, many of our listeners can do, whether young or not young, to uh, contribute to using this knowledge and background for our own historical development today. First, they can read about this history and visit places if they have the opportunity that we are having right now visit these places, there's no substitute for walking the streets and uh, stepping in the steps that others walked in before. Second, um, we can think about these difficult issues uh, about corruption. No system is perfect. No system is uh, free of human frailties. How do we learn to address these issues? How can we be honest about the limitations of our systems? We have to be realistic and skeptical as well as ideological. And then third, um, I think uh, one of the real lessons from Siena and Florence 
is that uh, good government requires good institutions and good people in those institutions. And uh, finding good people to be representative of us, electing good people, supporting good people. Uh, there's no substitute for integrity. Intelligence is important, but there's no substitute for integrity. Most of us choose uh, our life partners because we choose them for integrity. We should choose our representatives based on integrity as well. That's a lesson from the Renaissance. Yes, and these are the very same ideas that are uh, memorialized so eloquently on the walls of the City Hall in Piazza Publico here in Siena uh, in, a, in a great mural of the Renaissance period, which shows the allegory of good government as opposed to bad government. And that's really what this discussion of Sienese republicanism brings forth. So Natalie, do you think that, that young people your age are interested in the roots of modern governance? What do you think should be done to better educate young people on these issues? In my experience, obviously there are lots of exceptions, but in my experience, and personally, um, until recently, I have not been interested, and my friends are not interested, the people I hang out with. And with everything going on today, their parents have kind of convinced them to distance themselves from the political stuff going on. So in turn, they distance themselves for wanting to know about how our democracy works because they're just like, it's failed us. So they don't really they don't really seem to care. And it's not really a common topic. A lot of the problem is more with teenagers than with the system. But there's also problems with the system. But for example, like we're always so focused on like our own grades and like who we hang out with and like other issues that we're kind of living in our own bubble. So I think part of that is that learning about government isn't seen as cool. Learning often isn't really seen as cool. It's just like getting good grades. So how do you think we can make young people I think the broader problem, get out of their bubble? Well, the broader problem is teachers in general need to put more of an emphasis on learning how to learn than learning how to study for tests and stuff because everyone's so focused on their grades. Like, they'll do anything to get a good grade, whether it's memorize, like, vocab terms. Like, this year they had us memorize different kinds of governments and, like, what each government did. I, I'm, I haven't taken the government class yet, but when I've learned about government, it's not been taught in an interesting fashion, and I haven't really understood how it was relevant to me, and I haven't been interested in it because I, I oftentimes during the day I forget that there even is a government. So. Right, right. Can I how, how, do we, how can we make these issues more interesting for you, and how can we make young people like yourself more engaged in these issues? For me, it would be helpful because it would be helpful if um, there were options for, like, um, the, there's lots of articles in like the news and stuff, but they're very pedantic and it's hard to understand really what's going on. So if there could be, uh, it could, if it could be simplified a little for teenagers. The only stuff the teenagers know about is the really like crazy stuff, the stuff that's like like the jacket that. Um, can't remember her name, Melania Trump wore because it was crazy, but like we don't really know about the other little stuff because it's, we're not interested because it can't be made into a big thing and the articles are, we don't want to read extra. So to make so. society less focused on sensationalism. And I think that's a real lesson of what we were talking about today with Sionese republicanism, right? Because they wanted to avoid the sensational and focus more on how they could make a better form of government. I think this is really why this discussion today is very important, and, and that's why this is democracy. Hello, and welcome to this episode of This is Democracy. This is Zachary Suri. 
Today we are discussing the birth of creativity in the arts that centered on this beautiful city of Florence during what is known as the Renaissance. We are sitting here today with Jeremy Surrey. Hello. And Natalie Surrey. Hello. Well, as this is our usual team, uh, Jeremy, you have been taking us through the many parts of this city, bursting with the remnants of artists and great thinkers past. So, for all of our listeners who may not know exactly what the Renaissance is, what was the Renaissance and when did it occur? So the Renaissance, Zachary, is a general term we use to describe a period roughly from the 14th through 16th centuries, some dated a little, a little earlier, some a little later, when there was a flowering of creativity, creativity in the arts, creativity in literature and architecture, and also the development of new political forms, uh, particularly the city-states of Florence, Siena, and various others, that helped to cultivate uh, the arts. We think uh, quintessentially of the Renaissance as a moment when human flourishing and creativity seem to have a golden period uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world as well. So, um, what were some of the most important people and works that defined this period of the Renaissance? Well, scholars have spent uh, a long time studying these issues, going all the way back to the uh, 17th and 18th century, even to the period of the Renaissance itself, when people like uh, Vasari and others wrote about uh, great figures from their time. There were men and women, there were artists, there were politicians. Uh, some of the people we think about most are those like Michelangelo, and we could say the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo's David here in Florence are some of the uh, great examples of the Renaissance. We think of political figures like uh, Niccolo Machiavelli and his uh, complex and controversial book, The Prince. But we also have to think about uh, women and uh, various uh, non-traditional figures uh, from this period who played a very important role. Um, when we think about the Renaissance, we are thinking about a wide range of artists, philosophers, philosophers, writers, uh, and the wonderful thing about studying this period is there are always more of these figures to discover. What determined when the Renaissance started and what were the main things that led to it? It's a great question, Natalie. Uh, historians for a long time have debated why did this period uh, lead to so much creativity? Uh, part of it was the aftermath of the uh, plagues in Europe, the great deaths that were uh, caused by, uh, by a biological um, phenomenon that led to the deaths of, in some cases, whole cities or most of the population in many cities. Uh, the city of Siena, for example, lost about a third of its population. That led to a moment uh, when there was a new push to reinvent society. So there was this sense of a need to reinvent society. There was a new optimism that arose from the uncovering of many texts that had been preserved uh, by religious authorities, by uh, non-European groups, texts from the uh, ancient world. And most of all, there was a rise of commerce, uh, particularly in uh, Italy and in France, that led to new wealth. And that new wealth was used to fund uh, the works of Michelangelo and Leonardo and so many other figures we think of as quintessential Renaissance figures. All of these figures, the famous and the less famous, had patrons. The patrons were sometimes wealthy families. They were sometimes the Catholic Church. Uh, they were sometimes military and political leaders. The presence of money and the need for creativity, those were the incentives and the resources in some ways that allowed for this flowering to occur when it did. 
Yes, and this really highlights a point we like to make often on This Is Democracy, which is that the importance of investing in the arts and specifically in the humanistic studies cannot be overemphasized. It is something that is so important and so vital to the preservation of our democracy. I'm glad you emphasized that, Zachary, because none of these Renaissance works would exist if there wasn't a sense that to fund the arts, to fund something like the Sistine Chapel, or to fund uh, the great uh, dome that Brunelleschi built here in, in Florence in the 15th century on the dome, which was a real extraordinary work of engineering and artistry, a dome that's still standing, uh, that to fund this was to glorify your city, glorify your people, and that it was the highest achievement, and that society would be better off with the public funding of these elements without patronage and without the contribution of private and public money to the arts in the Renaissance, we would not have a Renaissance to speak of. Yes, and to talk more specifically about this location we're in right now of Florence, why did the Renaissance seem to center on this city on the Arne? Well, it's a great question because it follows from our discussion about Siena in our previous podcast. Siena, in some ways, was the more prosperous and more artistic uh, city. It was a rival of Florence. It's very close to Florence here in, in Tuscany. They had, had in many ways been ahead in the 14th century and some of the 15th century in the 1300s and 1400s. Florence leaped ahead because uh, of its victories on the battlefield. Uh, because of the growth of the wool industry in Florence, which provided more wealth, and because uh, of its size. And so Florence became a center for creativity. And we know three things about creative people from that period in our own. Creative people like to be around other creative people. So the existence of creativity in Florence, a, a, a certain density of it, increased creativity. Florence also was not under the control of a large empire at the time. And so it was decentralized, and that allowed for more freedom. And Florence was uh, jealous of displaying its freedom. It thought of itself as the David fighting the Goliath of France or the Vatican. And third, um, Florence uh, had uh, a mixing of cultures and ideas. It was a trading city, so many different influences came in. So you had these three elements that are, that are so important. You had uh, the attraction of talent and the growth of talent. You had the resources and the recognition of how important this, how important this was. Um, and you had uh, the freedom uh, to cultivate this kind of uh, artistic outpouring. Uh, those remain, I think, the essential elements. They're what make creative cities what they are in the 21st century as much as they did in the 15th century. Yes, but these ideas we speak of uh, that, that really, that really uh, made the foundation of the Renaissance period uh, did not come out of the blue. How did the, idea, the classical ideas of beauty and knowledge influence these Renaissance thinkers? Well, as, as I said, it's, it's, it's a wonderful question, Zachary. As I said, uh, the rediscovery of certain texts uh, from the ancient Greeks and the Romans, uh, texts that had been preserved often by religious authorities, sometimes by non-Europeans, sometimes by Muslim scholars and others in the so-called Dark Ages. The Dark Ages were not really dark. The preservation of texts, uh, the preservation of that knowledge uh, was crucial and a desire to find that. What Florentines and other, uh, other actors in the Renaissance were trying to do was find the wisdom of the past to guide them after this horrible period of death due to the, due to the, uh, the, the arrival of the, the plagues in, in Europe, emerging from this death, 
and finding a new world with new resources and new opportunities. They were looking to the past to find wisdom to guide them as they went forward, and they looked to classical forms of beauty to define what a good society should be. They thought that was a godly thing to do. And this really shows us the importance of studying history, the importance of looking at the past, analyzing what happened, and using the same ideas and structures to build our own future. And this is something, this going back to the past for new ideas is something that we really need to consider as we move into a moment of democratic renewal. I, I agree 100%. It is the past that provides us the guidelines, especially in difficult periods, for moving forward. And, and as you nicely imply, this is this is an important subject for us. It's, it's, of course, the new book that I'm writing, and, and our discussions here help contribute to that. So, Jeremy, how did the political tensions and the fighting that we spoke of, particularly between Siena and Florence, this sort of very militaristic competition, how did that affect the Renaissance? The competition is the key word here. Um, competition encouraged Florence to further patronize the arts. Uh, many of the great Renaissance thinkers, particularly Leonardo da Vinci, uh, were often... Um, hired to help develop new military weapons. Da Vinci worked for the Duke of Milan for quite a while uh, on this. The Florentines developed new forms of city management and city security. Um, so there was competition in a military sense, but there was also competition to show which city was the best. And that competition brought out the best in people. One of the other lessons from the Renaissance is that large empires create monopolies and stifle stifle competition, whereas decentralized city-states like Florence, Siena, and others can encourage competition and encourage creativity. And so the competition between Florence and Siena in particular uh, encouraged Florence to try to showcase the best of what it could do. That didn't make it a, a, a very gentle society. It was a brutal world. It was a brutal form of comp competition, and many Florentines were exiled or tortured, including Machiavelli, uh, for what we're seeing as sometimes treasonous activities. So we shouldn't, you know, pretend this was a, a, a golden age. It was not. But it was a time when the creativity was encouraged and incentivized by the competition between city-states. How did these ideas and thinkers of, the, of this great period of the Renaissance, how did they influence the creation and the implementation of American democracy? Well, exactly what we're talking about right now, Zachary and Natalie, are the, the things that the founding fathers, that uh, men like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were thinking about and reading about. They were very well read in this history. They knew this history of Florence and Siena as well as we did, if not better. They read deeply in it. And even those who were not involved in the formation of American society but were part of the early American republic, those who were not privileged enough to be political figures, had some sense of this. So you see a discussion of the Florentine Republic. You see a discussion of the Renaissance uh, among uh, non-elite figures. You see it among educated women, educated uh, local officials in the late 18th uh, century and the 19th century. This was the common dialogue. People who were educated at this time and thought about politics, thought about the ways in which the United States could take the best from the creativity of the Renaissance and apply it to our own world. They saw America as the center for a new democratic Renaissance. Right, and people like Thomas Jefferson were called Renaissance men. Sure. People who, who, who uh, the population looked to as people of promise were described in terms that uh, came from the Renaissance. And they meant precisely what we've been talking about here, and they meant the history of Florence, Siena, and this part of the world at this time. Also, um, uh, the reason why to so many tourists come is to see the the amazing, um, like the amazing works of art, and it's 
Yeah, so besides like the amazing works of art that we have here in Italy, yes. what were some of the other main legacies? I know we talked about a few, but what were some of the other main legacies of the Renaissance? Terrific question. I think there are many legacies beyond simply American political governance. Um, the Renaissance in, in some ways created a, a standard and an ideal of beauty uh, that later artists would strive to maintain and a vision of what a well-ordered society would be. Uh, before the Renaissance, um, the notion of a, of a well-ordered society really was much more hierarchical and it was often less humanistic. The Renaissance produced what scholars have called a new humanism, an emphasis upon individuality and human beings and certain value that human beings have. Compare anything by uh, Michelangelo with the wonderful artistry of those who came maybe two centuries earlier. And what you see in Michelangelo is, a, is a, a, an investment in the human spirit, an effort to capture the human spirit in the artwork that he produced and so many like him. This effort to understand human beings, this effort to see value in the individual, religious and secular value, uh, is such an important notion for us. Uh, our ideas of human rights, our ideas of civil rights, um, our ideas of justice are deeply influenced by the Renaissance. Now, the Renaissance had its limitations as well. It was uh, very male-dominated. It held up a particular ideal of people who looked a particular way. It was very European-centered. So again, it's not that the Renaissance provided a model in every way for today, but it provided some of the foundations for many of the conceptual elements of how we think about human society and justice in our world today. Yes, and as we talk about right the importance of the liberal arts, the importance of the humanistic studies, many of the many of the platforms from which these uh, studies are built on started in the Renaissance, began with very important people like Machiavelli and Michelangelo. So, what brought out the end of the Renaissance? Right. So in some ways, when did the Renaissance end is, I guess, what you're asking, Zachary, and why did it end? Um, in some ways, it never ended, right? It's an, it's an ongoing dialogue. And, and when we come, as Natalie pointed out so well, in such large numbers to places like Florence, we're continuing to have a dialogue and a discussion with this work. When we go to see the David and we go to the Sistine Chapel and we go to these places, right? we, we're in dialogue with it. Um, the historical period is generally seen as ending... Um, around the 18th century, the 1700s, probably a bit earlier, but certainly in the 18th century, because of the rise of more powerful militarized states in Europe and a series of religious and political wars in Europe. And those wars tore these societies apart. During the Renaissance, during the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, these societies were at war. But war was on a much smaller scale. The rise of larger wars, uh, particularly the Thirty Years' War, um, really created a context in which it was not possible for the flourishing of the arts, and that diverted resources and attention away. So one of the important lessons is that some competition, and even military competition, is compatible with artistic innovation, sometimes excessive military competition and excessive military spending, as Paul Kennedy and others have written, uh, drains the resources that are necessary for innovation. And that's the world of the 18th century. That's why Great Britain uh, began to tax its colonies more. And that's why the Americans felt they had to, those who came to call themselves Americans, pull out of the British Empire because they felt that it was not just taxing them heavily, but stifling their independence, freedom, and creativity. 
Yes, and these uh, these very issues of, of big empires and militarism are what forced countries like Germany and Italy, which had long been a series of independent, decentralized states that had thrived on creativity, that forced them to centralize, to yes. become nationalistic. Yes. And, and, and these are the same issues that in many ways led to the... To the, to the issues of fascism in the early 20th century. Yeah, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. These were not inevitable consequences, but there's no doubt, as, as Charles Tilley and others have written, that uh, the modern warfare of the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries, the warfare that in some ways was possible because of the innovations of the Renaissance, but the warfare that also undermined the Renaissance, that warfare made the modern state. And modern states, as we know them, mobilized resources to kill on a greater scale than ever before. And they used often ethnic and religious identity as a justification for killing, which is at the root of fascism and other forms of extreme militarism toward particular groups and other forms of modern racism and hatred. Do you think that we're going to have another renaissance soon? And if so, how would technology influence? Because we have to remember, as we look at their art, they didn't have technology. Like, they built... Um, Michelangelo built all of his, like the David without any use of technology. Yeah, so. no, you're right. You're right. The, the technology they used was was what we would consider primitive technology, right? Michelangelo's technology was a chisel and a hammer, well, I guess, right? The technology we have today, I mean. right? They, they did not have electricity. You have to remind yourself that they they put this huge dome on the Duomo here in in Florence in the 15th century without any electricity, without any mechanisms, and without a large slave population as they did in Egypt centuries earlier. Uh, So do we think that technology will help us to have a new renaissance? I I think we are approaching a new renaissance for, for many of the reasons we've laid out here, many of the conditions that we discussed our conditions in our world today. We live in a world today that's that's dealt with a lot of killing, a lot of damage, um, and there's a desire to move forward, and there are some really big, big uh, challenges we face, challenges regarding climate change, challenges regarding inequality, things we've talked about on this podcast repeatedly. And there are lots of young people who are not simply committed to using technology to make money, but I think to use technology to solve and address these problems, and there are sources of wealth public and private, that are devoting themselves to fund these sorts of opportunities. So I think there is a good chance, it's not for certain, we don't know, that we will see a renaissance. And when I look at cities like Austin and the Bay Area and elsewhere, I see, again, imperfections, but I see renaissance-like activities as people are coming together to support the arts, to support humanistic uses of technology to improve the human condition in creative ways. I'm more interested in that than I am in market creation. I'm interested in, in human flourishing and the creativity that allows for human flourishing. I think technology makes that possible. So I think it's possible, and I think we should be thinking about creating the conditions to encourage more of a democratic renaissance in our world today. And we need to remember that economic creation and the creation of capital is good in a capitalist society, but also that we need to remember the aims of the creation and of the capital. And the purposes. What is it about? Yes. Are we simply trying to get rich or are we trying to create a better human society? So, Jeremy, other than what we've just talked about, what are the major lessons that you think young people need to take away from this, this look at the Renaissance? 
I think there are three lessons that inspire me every time I'm in Florence and Siena and inspire me in these conversations that we've been having during our visit here, Natalie and Zachary. Um, first, I think young people need to find their passion. What you feel in Renaissance, what you feel in Florence, is the passion that moved the Michelangelos and others to produce these extraordinary works of art. Find your passion. Second, uh, think about your passion and the public role of your passion. How can your passion be used to help people? Even if it's something uh, that seems uh, non-utilitarian, bringing beauty to the world helps everyone. And so combining your passion with a public sensibility, what Machiavelli called a civic spirit, I think that's so important. And then third, um, when we have resources, devoting our resources to that. Uh, there are always new gadgets to buy. There's always uh, fancy stuff that we can spend our money on. Uh, but devoting ourselves to beauty, the arts, and improving the human condition, we should remind ourselves of that every day. E every one of us should be using our energy and talent, our passion and our public mindedness to improve the human condition. And we should be talking about that and encouraging everyone else to talk about that. It's fine to make money. Uh, but money should be devoted to a higher purpose in our lives and the lives of others. So now I ask you again, what lessons do you think young people need to learn and, and should learn from these issues that we talked about? Well, so um, it, it, it's hard, like I've noticed with myself and with a lot of people around me that it's really hard not to just think about what you're gonna do and how like, like on my basketball team, everyone's just focused on their skill level and not like, bringing the team together and having like a relationship that could last us forever. So I think it's important to come outside yourself and make sure you're helping the other people around you and not just making sure that you do well, because that's not important. We, in order to have a good society, in order to have a good basketball team, you, everybody needs to want to do well and want to contribute. And if you don't welcome them because you're so focused on yourself and what, how much money you're making or how much you're doing, it's not gonna be helpful. The limits of selfishness, right? Yeah. And finding value uh, not just in oneself, but in the connections to others. Very well said. And being a good citizen, a good teammate in this large global society, uh, fighting to make our societies better places for everyone. And I really think that now in a world filled with questions about the meaning and the importance of creativity and the liberal arts, it is really important for us to remember how deeply our world is defined by the great free thinkers of centuries past after all, to paraphrase Salman Rushdie, the past has dripped into us, so we can't ignore it. And that's why this is democracy. This is democracy, signing off from Florence. Arrivederci. Arrivederci. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.